Welcome to VoiceOver Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? Today is December 9th, 2022. This episode is the chapter-by-chapter -chapter preview of Nick Trenton's book, Stop Negative Thinking. The author takes you through the psychology of negative thinking and breaks it down for what it is, cognitive distortions brought on by damaging self-perceptions. Nick Trenton takes you through the entire process of how to preempt negative thoughts, cope with them, and finally, heal yourself of them. Thanks for joining us today. This is the chapter-by-chapter -chapter preview of Stop Negative Thinking by Nick Trenton. Chapter 1. Reframe your internal dialogue and take control of your self-talk. If you've picked up this book, there's a good chance that you've noticed that your own internal thought processes are not what they could be. Pervasive negative thinking is the kind of problem that initially seems to fly under the radar. A person with a predisposition to interpret everything in a negative light can convince themselves for a long time that they are completely neutral and objective observers, and the negativity simply lies in what they're observing. That there seems to be an awful lot of negativity out there only dimly arouses their suspicion. Pervasive negative thinking is like having a poisoned pot in your kitchen so that everything you cook in that pot becomes poisoned too. You think you have one problem. Everything you eat seems to make you sick, but in fact you have another, perhaps more serious problem. You continue to use the poisoned pot. If you regularly find yourself saying things like, everything is awful, then you can be pretty sure that you have a poisoned pot in your mental kitchen. So much personal development and self-help material out there is designed to help you fix the problems that your mind has told you are there. How do I stop being so lazy and unmotivated? How do I get over being so fat and out of shape? How do I stop being such a loser? But you can see the problem. The solution you really need is to be curious about the mindset that allows you to think that you are a fat, lazy loser in the first place. You already know that the way you think influences how you see yourself, the world, and everyone around you. But it goes even further than this. How you think doesn't just influence your life. It is your life. If the mind is the means by which we tell our story, interpret those stories, and ascribe meaning to our experiences, then the mind is more or less in charge of all of it. The way we think determines what we believe is possible, how we solve problems, what we can expect in the future and how to plan for it, and therefore, how we act. The way we think tells us why our experiences happened and what they mean, and therefore, our value in that story, i.e., our self-worth. The way we think highlights certain events as all-important and allows us to forget others so that we reinforce not what is most real, but what most fits our assumptions. The way we think even decides what enters our conscious awareness in the first place and determines which parts of the big wide world we never even realize are right there. So, if your thinking is heavily skewed to the negative, you have a serious problem. Humankind has long recognized the possibility of having 
so warped and distorted a mental filter that the person is assumed to have lost touch with reality entirely. We know that people in severe depressive episodes, or those with psychosis or paranoia, have not just made a misinterpretation of reality. They can't see it at all. And yet, how many normal people are walking around with a head full of thoughts that are just as unconnected to reality? If a paranoid schizophrenic says, I'm queen of the moon, and I need to find my way back there before the mole people catch me, we can easily recognize the claim for what it is, nonsense. But if a friend tells you, I can't come with you to the speed dating thing tonight, that kind of thing just doesn't work for me. Plot. Chapter 2. Analyze Thyself. The ABC Method and Thought Journals. We've explored the idea of reframing thoughts and began to identify cognitive distortions as well as gently challenge them as they emerge. It's important that we have these fundamental paradigm shifts in place first. Otherwise, we'll merely be working within our negative mindset, not working on our negative mindset. As Einstein famously said, we can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. In this chapter, we'll look more closely at a concrete technique for slowing right down and rewriting the very programming that our negative thinking runs on. But first, let's look at the insights gathered by the founder of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, CBT, Albert Ellis. In his work, he couldn't help but notice that different people seem to respond very differently to similar events. Why? The events themselves didn't explain the difference. It must be the thoughts, feelings, and beliefs of the people who were interpreting these events. Over the years, Ellis came to the same conclusions that Shakespeare arguably did in Hamlet when he said, There's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Thoughts, feelings, and actions are all connected and work together to create your response to external events. The ABC method, inspired by this understanding, helps us tease apart the different elements. A is for activating event. This is neutral, in the sense that it only takes on meaning and value according to our response to it. B is for beliefs, how we respond internally to the event. C is for consequence. Importantly, the outcome or consequence is not a direct result of the event, but of our interpretation of the event. The event is always neutral. You can see where this is going. If we want to change our lives, we shouldn't start with A, the external events, but B, how we think about the events these events come from. In CBT, the goal is to make adaptive changes, so two new letters are added. D is for disputation. This is where we challenge the ideas in B. E is for new effect, something different, to replace the old C. Let's look at an example. Dan has always loved motorcycles and owns several. One fateful day is out riding at night and has an accident. It collides with a car, severely injuring the mother and daughter inside, totaling his favorite bike, and leaving him with spinal damage that means that he'll not ride a bike again for years, if ever. That's one big 
gnarly activating event. Believe it or not, Ellis would say that this event, tragic as it appears, is neutral and has no meaning by itself. But Dan is right there and responding instantly. He's completely destroyed with guilt and remorse. He calls it a tragedy. His world is so shaken by the event that he considers it a pivotal moment. Before the accident, he was happy, carefree, and innocent. After it, he was a condemned man, miserable, doomed to carry the remorse of the damage he'd caused, not to mention the physical pain from his own significant injuries. Dan refuses to forgive himself. Despite being forgiven by the mother and the daughter in the car, and despite everyone around him telling him that... Chapter 3. Master the Art of Distress Tolerance and Self-Soothing Perhaps you read about Ellen's tales of woe and thought, fair enough, but some of us have real problems we're dealing with. This is a good observation. Sometimes people think negatively because they're simply responding to something negative in their environment. Few of us will get through life without experiencing an emotional crisis, a big loss, an upheaval, or an accident at some point or another. It's one thing to learn to master your thought processes so that you're not creating unnecessary suffering for yourself, but it's another when you're faced with a legitimately negative circumstance that cannot be avoided. What then? In this chapter, we'll talk about distress tolerance and how to cultivate it. This is a set of skills that most people don't really think about until they're in a crisis situation and need them urgently. But many of the same principles of diffusing, perspective switching, reframing, and challenging your cognitive distortions can be used when we're facing a situation that makes us feel out of control. Call it a toolkit of crisis survival skills. The tools we'll describe below can be used when... You're in extreme pain, emotionally or physically. There's a formidable temptation that you have to resist. You're dealing with a temporary but very challenging situation that can't be avoided. It's an emergency, and you have to be productive and focused, even though you're completely overwhelmed. There's a conflict, and you need to put aside raw emotions to communicate effectively. You're absolutely terrified, but need to act wisely anyway. A crisis can put a major dent in anyone's sense of emotional mastery and control. When the chips are down, it's easy to slip back into old patterns of behavior or default to clumsy, destructive, or unconscious ways of coping. Trouble is, though these habits may feel momentarily soothing, they ultimately create more problems and set up negative feedback loops that keep amplifying themselves. Alex has hurt his back at his job. He's received some workers' comp, but he's basically off-duty until he gets better. He's at home, alone. His partner works all day. The doctors and physiotherapists don't feel like they're helping, and there's no end in sight. His boss has been kind enough, but Alex knows it's only a matter of time before they need to let him go. His back is getting worse, not better, and Alex is unsure how they'll fund the enormously expensive surgery if he needs it, or what they'll do for money once his savings and insurance money are gone. In other words, 
Alex is in a crisis. He's in pain and can't be prescribed any more painkillers since they're addictive, but on some days the pain is so intense, Alex doesn't know what to do with himself. He can't move. He's depressed, anxious, bored, lonely, scared, and exhausted. And every day he faces excruciating pain that doesn't let up. What can he do? Alex's solution is threefold. He soothes himself with comfort eating and junk food. He sits immobile on the sofa for hours-long marathon gaming sessions, and he starts abusing alcohol. These things don't help exactly, but they make everything a little more bearable. They all Chapter 4. Upgrade Your Psychological Toolkit with Stoic Amorfati Philosophy Long before the first psychiatrists and psychologists began to make their models of human suffering, the ancient Stoics had a fully developed understanding of the human condition and a philosophy of living they believed to be the most balanced and rational. The fact that so many modern people still find solace and strength in these ancient principles is a testament to how useful they really are. The Stoics were masters at living in the present, they saw clearly that the answer to negative thinking, and especially anxiety and worry, was to come back to the only place you actually have any control, the present. The past matters, but it should be studied and learned from, and then forgotten. The future also matters, but we should not obsess uselessly over it. Instead, we should use what we have right now to make plans to prepare for the worst and set in motion projects that will serve us best. Beyond that, the future too should be forgotten. After all, it'll arrive in due course, one way or another. Beyond Radical Acceptance, Amor Fati One way of rethinking your relationship to the past is to adopt the stoic attitude of Amor Fati. This translates roughly to love of one's fate and is a sentiment that is sadly not common in modern hearts and minds. With this attitude, one does not merely tolerate one's fate, but embraces it, loves it. Whatever happens in life, and that includes all the painful, confusing, and difficult parts, is welcomed and appreciated as something beautiful and, in its way, necessary. In his book, Enchiridion, Epictetus advises us, do not seek for things to happen the way you want them to. Rather, wish that what happens the way it happens. Then you'll be happy. In other words, learn to want what is, and you cease to fight against anything. He tells us in a later work, The Art of Living, that prudent people look beyond the incident itself and seek to form the habit of putting it to good use. In his famous work, Meditations, much-loved Stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius says, Universe, whatever is constant with you, is consonant with me. If something is timely for you, it's neither too early nor too late for me. Nature, everything is fruit to me that your seasons bring. Everything comes from you. Everything is contained in you. Everything returns to you. Can you feel the enormous sense of relief in that passage? 
These philosophers suggest that we quietly bear our misfortunes and be strong, but they're taking it somewhat further. Our misfortunes, with the attitude of Amor Fati, are in fact not things to bear and endure and tolerate, but things to embrace. If reality itself has seen fit to make certain things occur, who are you to argue? In fact, why should you do anything other than be glad that events have unfolded in the way they have? This way of thinking takes some time to digest, since it is so radically different from the typical sense of regret, dissatisfaction, and resistance most of us are taught to eliminate when it comes to our lives. Although the original principles came from Stoic philosophers like Seneca and Aurelius, it was also the philosopher... Chapter 5. Avoiding the Trap of Toxic Positivity and Feel Your Feelings Craig is someone who's really turned his life around. In his early 20s, he suffered terribly from depression, anxiety, and low self-esteem. But that was before he joined a community yoga class and felt so much better that very same day. Within a few years, he was reading countless fascinating New Age self-help books, taking classes on the law of attraction manifestation, and had become a vegetarian. He grasped what he felt was an unavoidable truth. As you think, so shall you become. To Craig, the universe was pure consciousness and love. If you could match that frequency of trusting and generative positivity, then you would always align with the good that was flowing all around you at all times. If you're negative, though, the universe will mirror that negativity straight back at you. In time, Craig starts to understand all the adversity that he'd experienced as a manifestation of his own lack of self-love and his own doubt in universal abundance. And thinking this way worked for him until it didn't. When his sister died, Craig was completely bowled over by an unmanageable mass of negative feelings that caught him off guard. He told himself that there are no mistakes in life, that she was somewhere better, that it was all okay, and that there was no need to mourn, since energy never disappears, it only changes form. And yet, he still felt devastated. He hid these feelings of devastation, even from himself, he couldn't admit that part of his new conversion to the light meant obsessively guarding against any experience of the dark. He put on a brave face, and when people asked how he was doing, he responded with speeches about the transcendental nature of mortality and the Tibetan Book of the Dead and how he was ecstatic to receive this lesson in non-attachment. In response to the mourning of his other family members, he remained aloof and occasionally sent them inspiring quotes that actually upset them. One day he makes his mother cry when he not so subtly suggests that her continued upset is evidence of her poor spiritual development and that she should meditate more instead of moping around. It sounds cruel, but it's only a natural conclusion of the very same philosophy that had helped Craig up till that point. Craig's only crime was that he sincerely wanted to be good. Only good. He saw himself as strong and wise and happy, who wouldn't want the same. And when he instead felt weak and foolish and desperately sad, he didn't know what to do with those feelings. 
when he spoke to his fellow New Age friends, and even when he consulted a local counselor, they only gave him pithy Zen cones and said, Everything happens for a reason, or tried to remember the good times, unconsciously affirming this fear that negativity was unacceptable, and to indulge it to any degree meant that you were a bad person. For Craig, bad meant unenlightened, unevolved, and unintelligent, things he really didn't want to be. One day, a few months after the death of his sister, Craig is at rock bottom again. How did this happen? What about all that positive personal growth and development? What about all that positivity and enthusiasm? Where did it go? Chapter 6 But where does negative thinking really come from? The more you work at identifying and rewriting your negative thought patterns, the better you'll come to understand this part of yourself and realize how deep those roots really run. Why are some people so prone to negative thinking, pessimism, and a defeated attitude? Why do some of us dwell on anxieties and get embroiled in self-doubt while others don't? Why do some people struggle with depression and low mood all their lives while others seem to be functioning from a seemingly inexhaustible well of optimism? Those are big questions, and psychology has been trying to answer them for a long time. In this book, we've focused on possible answers at the psychological level. We've explored how a critical and distorted inner dialogue encourages us to frame events according to a particular mental filter. And we've seen how thoughts and core beliefs influence the perspective we use to interpret everything around us. But then the question is, where did these thoughts come from? And what distorted those filters in the first place? There are different levels at which we can think about the problem. Physical. It's about hormones, genes, neurotransmitters, the food you eat, and the exercise you get, or don't. Emotional. Your unique feelings and responses to events that color and shape everything. Cognitive. The way you understand, explain, and conceptualize the world and yourself. Psychological. How your emotional and cognitive processing comes together into internal schemas and narratives. Social. The way your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors interact relationally with those around you, particularly your immediate family and early caregivers. Evolutionary. The fitness adaptations you've inherited from your ancestors. Cultural. The broader social and environmental significance of your life. Spiritual. The broader meaning of your life in relation to the divine or transcendental. Historical. Your life as a developmental and in the context of broader time scales relations. Political. The way your life interacts with the economy, the law, and the overarching power dynamics you live within. At every level, we can be influenced either toward a way of living that is predominantly pessimistic and negative, or one that supports our own conscious choice and agency. 
Though this book is focused mainly on the cognitive, emotional, and psychological dimensions, it doesn't take long to see that this is not the full story. If you were an impoverished peasant living in medieval times and suffered from malnutrition and disease all your life, it's hard to imagine how any of the techniques in this book could make a dent. To return to the question of what causes a person's negative disposition, well, everything. But the reason we focused on the psychological and cognitive and emotional aspect is because, frankly, this is the area of life where we have the most control. In this final chapter, we'll look at two more sources of negativity and make an attempt to mitigate their impact on our daily life. The first is what's called negativity bias. And the second... You've just listened to VoiceOver Work, an audiobook sampler. To learn more from Nick Trenton, please visit bit.ly slash Nick Trenton. Join us again next week for a preview of our next featured audiobook.